Thank you, Owen. And um, so uh, I'm sure sometime between now and Friday morning early, you're going to get out and get your milk and bread. So I'm going to encourage you, just think about it now. Don't look to the milk and bread. Look to the cookies and the chips and the Mountain Dew. And when you do, think of me. And then Saturday, Friday night, all day Saturday, uh, as you're sitting around, see if you don't enjoy that more than the milk and bread. <laughs> so uh, I'm very happy that we were able to, to get through this study, though. Uh, this, this week has been, the weather's been fantastic, and uh, it feels like spring or summer Bible study today. Uh, and so we, we avoided the weather despite the traffic last night. And uh, yesterday I came down with this sore throat yesterday afternoon. But I feel fine and it doesn't affect my voice. It's just, it's hard to swallow. And I don't need to swallow very much while I teach. So it's, it's been, it's no problem. So I, I, I just feel such a sense of accomplishment to get through the study with you. And I would have so hated, and we've had to do this before, like cancel Wednesday night because of weather and I came back I think a later Wednesday night to finish we've had to do that kind of thing I just hate to do that so I'm very pleased we've been able to get through appreciate your good attendance I know everybody can't be here every night of the week but it's been very well attended and good to see you here tonight and now Sunday morning I'm due to be at First Baptist Enid and every model that they show that swish Enid's right in the center of what's supposed to get hit the hardest. So, uh, not sure what's going to happen uh, there, but uh, that's not your concern. <laughs> but the, you might think, uh, you might watch those models and see what it looks like in Enid and wonder what Dr. Kelly did. But I, I'd be okay if ta taking the weekend off if that's uh, if that's what I have to do. Well, let's get to let's get to uh, Malachi and finish up uh, our study. So let's start with just a little bit of review. See if we can see if we can think through where we've been. Uh, in Malachi 1.1, you have an introduction, very brief introduction, uh, which is the oracle uh, of the word of the Lord uh, through Malachi, um, his, the messenger. So you have one verse of introduction, and then you have a series of six disputations. The first one is 1, 2 through 5, and it starts with the assertion, I have loved you. They say... How have you loved us? Uh, and then he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So, right? So you can kind of think through what that first disputation was about. Uh, the second one runs from 1, what is that, 1, 6 through 2, 9. And that's the one where he says, you have, you have defiled, you have desecrated my name. And they say, how have we desecrated your name? That would be Roman numeral 2. Uh, I think if you're looking on your uh, on your materials there, let me actually look and see what on the handout what that is, so you can you can f make sure we're following along here. Um, after the introductory stuff, under under uh, B, one was how have you loved us? That's the first disputation, uh, and then two is how have we despised your name? That's the one I was just saying, and and the everything is aimed at the priests there. They're making sacrifices that are not acceptable, they're offering animals that are blemished, uh, they're offering stolen animals, and so he's, he's very harsh towards the leadership. And that's always the case. If, if you have leaders who are supposed to lead you in the way and they've lost their way, then the, the repercussions of that are, are pretty serious. 
Uh, and then Roman numeral 3 gets us to what we did more recently. Roman numeral 3 is 2, 10 through 16. And there's not really a, a question in that one in the same way. It's a little bit different than the other six. But essentially he says, you've been faithless to me and to your brothers and sisters. And, the, and essentially they say, how have we been faithless? And he gives two examples. One, you're marrying with people who don't worship me, inter, interfaith marriage. And you divorced the wife of your youth. Uh, and so God hates divorce. And so marrying exotic women, women who are not Israelite women, women uh, who worship other gods is a way in which they've been faithless to God and to each other and then divorces the other. Then Roman numeral four is what the, the sermon Sunday morning, and I just hit, hit it very quickly last night. He says, you have, you, you have exhausted me with your words. And they say, how have we exhausted you with our words? And he says, well, you say that I call evil good and good evil. You ask, where is the God of justice? And he says, I'm still the God of justice, and you can, you can bet on it, I'm coming to do my justice, and you better make sure you're right when I do, or maybe that day won't be such a wonderful day like you might think it would be. That brings us to what we're going to focus on tonight. It's the fifth and sixth disputations. And uh, the first one is in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And uh, the focus is on how do we return? So at 3, 6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, in your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If, if I will not open and to see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So this disputation revolves around the hope that they can return. It starts with a statement that God does not change. That's, that's the first line. He says, for the Lord of hosts does not change. Now what would give rise to the, the, maybe the subtle charge that God changes was in that previous passage they said, you call evil good and good evil, where is the God of justice? In a sense, they're accusing God of having undergone some sort of a change. I mean, the God that they had known, would be their argument, was a God of justice. The God that they had committed themselves to was a God who called evil, evil, and good, good. And what they're essentially saying is, something's changed in God. So You've changed God because now you're calling good, evil, and evil, good, and there's no justice in the land, so you've changed he comes back and asserts right from the top, I, the Lord God, do not change. 
Now, of course, that means that God does not change in his attributes. God does not change in his character. Um, God will change the future in response to his people's prayers. That Jeremiah 18 uh, that I read to you probably Sunday night where he says, if I've decided that I'm going to bless you and then you disobey me, I may turn from the blessing I was going to give you. If I was going to destroy you, but you repent, I will turn from the destruction I was going to bring upon you. Now, it's a tricky thing because I don't think God is surprised if we repent or we don't repent. But somehow, our prayers and our response to God has the power to alter the future. Now, God may factor in what our response is going to be into the future, but in that sense, we might say God does change. He will, not his character, not his attributes, but he will change the future in response to our prayers or in response to our repentance. And ultimately, one, I would absolutely affirm that God is sovereign, but I would also affirm that God is free. And if God desi desires to change the future that he had uh, purposed because of prayers, who can question that? God is sovereign. God is free. Uh, and I think that's at the, at the very heart of who God is. But there's no denying that the, the Lord does not change in his character, in his attributes. You can count on God. Well, you can also count on human beings. We don't change either. We're disobedient. He says, Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So not only is it true that God does not change, it's true that we don't change. We continue, he says, back to your fathers, your ancestors, they disobeyed me, you disobey me, your children will likely disobey me. Human beings are consistent in that we disobey God. Even those of us who are his people, even those of us who are committed to him, we still end up not keeping his statutes. So we don't change in the same way that God doesn't change. Well, that gives rise to this uh, very uh, hopeful word uh, when he says in verse, what is this verse? Uh, it's still verse 7. But you say, he says, uh, yeah, it's verse 7. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. It's, it's the most hopeful line probably uh, that we found so far. I don't change, God says. You don't change in your disobedience. And the distance is growing between us. And yet, if you will return to me, I will return to you. And that distance can be bridged. It's the great hope of human beings. That God offers us the opportunity to repent. That God offers us the, 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 the opportunity to return to him. And when I read that line, I think of, um, you know, maybe Luke's commentary on that very line is, is like, or Jesus, it's Jesus' story, it's in Luke 15, about the prodigal uh, son and the loving father. And, and the distance had certainly grown between the father, who's very stable in that passage, he doesn't change, he loves his sons, both of them, all the way through the story. The son is disobedient. Asking for the inheritance before his father's even dead. Getting it. Doing the worst possible thing a young Jewish boy could do with it. And finding himself 
having fallen as low as a young Jewish boy could possibly fall, working on a pig farm with nothing. And what does he do? He, he determines, I better go back to my father. He determines to return. And when he does, there's always that chance. He doesn't know. There is the chance that his father would have him stoned to death or completely reject him. But what does the father do in that parable? Embraces him, runs to him. And, and I think that's a beautiful image of this return to me and I will return to you. It says something about God's steadfast love. God does not change in this way. God is a God of love and mercy and grace. And if we will return to him, uh, he will return and open his arms to us. So there's the good news. Well, what do they say? Thanks be to God? Not really. They say, how shall we return? And it seems like they don't know much about repentance at this point. They don't seem to understand that. How shall we return? And here's the response in verse 8. God says to them, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? So now, now note what's going on here. They have more problems than merely not paying their tithe. That's just the one issue God chooses to focus on to demonstrate to them what they need to do, what repentance looks like. And it's clear that repentance is not simply coming to a recognition, I shouldn't be doing this, and saying to God, I'm really sorry. That's not repentance. He's going to use a concrete example of what he means when he says, return to me. And he chooses one area that they are disobedient in, and it happens to be in their tithe. Shouldn't surprise us. He's already talked about how they're bringing the wrong kinds of offerings, and they're even stealing animals to bring the offering. So they've had problems in this area. That's pretty obvious. So when they say, how shall we return, he immediately zeroes in on a particular issue. And uh, I, Owen didn't say this, but another pastor that I'm doing one of these for said to me, uh, what is it? I said, it's Malachi. He said, good. I want you to really hammer that will a man rob God passage. <laughs> he was joking. Uh, he told his, his congregation, he said, I think Dr. Kelly, I asked him if he's willing to come for the full week and just focus on uh, paying your tithes and offerings. And, uh, but that's not their only problem. It's just the one he chooses to demonstrate to them what returning to God might look like in, in real life, a real concrete example. So when they say, how shall we return? He says, will a, will a man rob God? You're robbing me. Their response to that is, how have we robbed you? He says, in your tithes and your offerings. They were supposed to bring a tenth, a tenth of their produce, a tenth of their livestock, and not the last tenth, the first tenth. And tithe, the Hebrew term for tithe just means tenth. And so that's what they were supposed to do. Obviously, they're not doing it. And because of that, he says in verse 9, You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. So I think that line says something about the severity of what they've done. You are cursed with a curse. You know, that double language of curse. It's not just you are cursed. That, that would get the job done to say you're cursed, but he says you're cursed with a curse. And if you look in the Old Testament, 
when God talks about a curse, it can be very harsh. And for their immediate example, the curse that comes from disobedience to God can be locusts, drought, your, prop, your crop's not producing. When your crops don't produce, you don't have food, you don't have anything to sell, you can't acquire food for eating, you can't, can't buy food because you don't have any money. I mean, it can be total destruction. So he says, you're cursed with a curse. That, that says something about the severity of their disobedience. And then the scope of it is the whole nation of you. It sounds like this is not an isolated problem with a few of you, and I'm going to single you all out sort of as a, and your particular sin as an example. It sounds like it's, it's widespread, this problem of not bringing their, the proper tithe, either amount or type. And so he's the whole nation of you. And that language of the whole nation of you, usually when, when God uses the language when a pro, in the prophets, when they use the language of nation or nations, it's the pagan nations. When he says here the whole nation of you, it sort of echoes to me as if he's asserting by your disobedience, by your failure to bring your tithe, you're acting like a pagan nation. You're, you're actually becoming no better than the pagan nations who don't even acknowledge me. It, it's, it's pretty severe. So here's what he says. Here's how you return. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer. Now that's not like Satan. That's the little critters that eat up your crops. I will rebuke the devourer, the one that devours your crops, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. I'll take care of those, you know, those troublesome locusts. I'll give you rain for your crops. Test me and see. Now you think about it. How often does God say, test me? Not very often. In fact, we're told on numerous occasions that we are not to put God to the test. That we should trust God rather than testing God. In fact, this is the only place where God says, test me. Psalm 95.9 would be a good example of the don't test God variety passage psalm 95 9 come let us worship and bow down let us kneel before the lord our maker for he is our god and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts as at meribah as in the day of Massa in the wilderness that's where they complained that they were starving and they didn't have enough water and moses strikes the rock and, and they get water from the rock that's what happens at meribah and Massa. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they'd seen my work. And because of that, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know me. Now, that's an example of when people were testing God. They were grumbling. They were complaining. They were saying things like, well, it would have been better if we'd never even come out of Egypt. Now you brought us out here in the desert to die? 
And, and, you, and this is the guy you've set out as our leader, Moses. We don't even know where he is half the time. He goes up on the mountain. We don't know what he's doing. This is a disaster. What are you doing, God? And by doing that, they were testing God rather than trusting that God would take care of them. Deuteronomy 6.16. A very clear commandment. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Massa is one of those locations where Moses strikes the rock and God provides water. So now fast forward to Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and Jesus is in the wilderness and it's one of those very important scenes in his preparation for his public ministry and Satan, the devil, appears to him there and first says to him, turn these stones to bread and he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 uh, Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from, from God and then he says to, to the, the, the tempter says to Jesus, why don't you jump from the temple? Takes him up on the high point and jump, and, and he'll give his angels charge over you. And in response to that, Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So he quotes this passage. So I would say that's a pretty solid principle. Trust God, don't test God. Don't put God to the test, generally speaking. Trust God. But in this one area, in this one instance, he says, test me in this. See if I'm not capable of blessing you instead of cursing you if you will bring your tithe. And, and he, he's, he's pretty specific here in how he describes it. Put me to the test to see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing until there's no more need. Now, you got to think like an ancient Near Eastern person. I don't know what you think about when you think windows of heaven. But these Israelites would have thought about, they would have thought back to Genesis chapter 1 when God creates. Like verses 7 and 8. And when he creates, it looks like it's all water. The creation begins as water. And then he creates the land that separates the waters. So it's as if there's this canopy above and some sort of canopy of land below that holds back these waters from above and below. It's the land masses. Well, what happens if that canopy is removed? Is that a good thing? So, so when he says, uh, I will open the windows of heaven... It, it, it's somehow speaking about this canopy that holds back the waters above. Now, isn't that a blessing when the windows of heaven open and God allows the waters to come through this canopy that is above and that water that comes through the, the windows, comes out of the windows of heaven, waters your crops. Isn't that a blessing? But what if the window just completely opens up and the canopy is removed is that a blessing? I mean, can't your crops get too much water? Think about if that canopy is removed and it rains, the waters above just pour on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. What would you have there? Would that be a really big blessing? And that's precisely the language that describes the flood account in Genesis 7. 
the floodgates of heaven, the windows of heaven open for 40 days and 40 nights. And so by the same image, there's blessing and curse. Uh, you know, my, my child Luke will be one on Thursday night who will be giddy watching the forecast hoping that there will be enough ice, snow, something that they will cancel school on Friday, right? But if we have ice for 40 days and 40 nights, that's more than he, even he'd be bargaining for, even if that meant missing 40 days of school because, of course, the power would be out. We'd wish we had our milk, our bread, our cookies, our candy, and our Mountain Dew. It'd all be gone. You, don't, you can't even begin to think about it the fallout from something like that what's amazing about this language here is the same image that can be an image of blessing rain coming down from the sky the windows of heaven opening but with appropriate amount of water can also be an image of cursing if God just removes the canopy and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights and and this passage talks about both blessing and curse if you don't return to me it's like oh yeah I might open up the the floodgates of heaven and just let it rain for a really long time that'd be the kind of curse image or i could open it up an appropriate amount of time and bless you so that your crops grow test me on this he says see if i'm not capable of blessing uh, just as i'm capable of judgment and cursing and so he says i'll rebuke the devourer i'll get rid of the locusts i'll give you rain and then all the nations will call you blessed for you'll be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So how shall we return? What should we do in the face of our disobedience to God? We should return to God. Well, how do we do that? We repent. That's how you return to God. You confess your disobedience. Well, do you just say, God, I'm sorry? No, there are always concrete actions that demonstrate your repentance. It's never enough just to say, I'm sorry. You've got to fix the problem. You've got to move in the direction of doing something different than what you're doing that is disobedience. So how do we return? We don't just say, I'm sorry. We start paying our tithe. Bring your tithe into the storehouse. There was actually a room for supplies in the temple. They would bring them into this this area of the supplies a room and and i think they would use that to care for the widows and the orphans and the immigrants you know that's three of the groups that he said back there earlier that you all aren't caring for uh, and it helped care for the priests and the levites who worked in the temple area so bring bring all this and we'll put it in the storehouse and uh, that that will be a concrete display of your repentance and, and I see so much, and it's not the same thing because these people aren't repenting before God. But I, I continually see these public figures who get caught doing things that society has determined is, is a no-no. Of course, society doesn't determine everything that is a no-no to be a no-no. But there are still some things out there you can get in a lot of trouble for. And it seems at the moment, and I, and I watch a lot of sports, so it's athletes that I think about the number one sin for an athlete right now is not drug abuse, not homosexuality, it's none of those things. It's 
domestic abuse. If you do that, you're going to get hot water. I mean, come on, OU fans. Um, the, the running back whose name I won't mention, um, that, was, that became a, a big story uh, in, in, that, in their bowl game because the videos of the punching of the girl came out and now they're talking about it on the, and, and it, it hurts draft status and, you know, okay. Well, I absolutely expect that somebody's going to get up there and say, I'm real, I shouldn't have done that, although sometimes they're slow to even spit that out. But do you think they're, they're really sincere about that? I don't know. But I'm always sitting there thinking, don't, I don't want to just hear you say that. First of all, I want to know you don't do that anymore. And sometimes they, they get caught, there's a, there, there'll be a follow-up, subsequent event. So sh surely they weren't as repentant as maybe they appeared initially. I want to see you then working, uh, raising money, contributing money to causes that support those who suffered under that kind of abuse. I want you to speak out. I want you to go to high schools and speak to groups and talk to them about how awful domestic violence is. And now I believe you're genuine. Now you might not still be, I can't see a person's heart, God can, but it, there's, there's concrete evidence that you're, you really are making a change and you really are sorry about what you did. Now, you carry this over then into a holy God who we might be in the practice of disobeying. And it's just foolish to think saying, oh, I'm sorry, is sufficient. There must be concrete steps or it's not genuine repentance. Uh, there, we can be sorry we got caught. We can fear that God's going to do, you know, curse us. So, so we but. Until we make concrete changes, I'm not sure anybody can consider that genuine repentance. It involves a change of direction. And so he uses the example of people who aren't paying their tithe, starting to bring their tithe into the storehouse. Now that's returning to God. That demonstrates the reality of your heart that you're, you're making a change. That brings us to the final disputation. Uh, and it's 3.13 through 4.3. And it's going to sound a lot like an earlier one that we saw um, where they charged that he was, uh, where was his justice? So it starts at, uh, this will be Roman numeral 6, uh, starts at verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And then, verse, 18, or verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. 
Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So, so here's their, their challenge here. He says, you're wearing me out with your words again, which is what he said back there in, uh, in, in an earlier disputation. Uh, go back to... Uh, the one that's too, well, let me see if I can find it quickly here. Um, is it too, ah, I can't see it quickly. You've wearied me with your words. Yeah, a 217. You, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now that's 217. This was the fourth disputation. You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we worried him? By saying everyone who does evil is good, or by asking, where's the God of justice? So it's a question of justice. That's how they're wearying God with their words. Now we come back to the sixth, and it's at 313. He says, your words have been hard against me, but you say, how have we spoken against you? So it's very similar to that you have wearied me with your words. Well, what have they said? He says, you've said, it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers shall not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What are they questioning? They're questioning God's justice again. They're saying, seems useless to be obedient to God. It seems useless to be God's people. It seems useless to serve God. Because the evildoers, they're doing just fine. It's almost as if God doesn't take note of our obedience. Or if he does, he's, he forgets about it. You know, like he's a 51-year-old who can't remember things as well as he used to. I'm 51. I am that man. And uh, so once again, it questions God just as me. What kind of God is that? Uh, who rewards the, the unrighteous and, and gives no reward to those who obey him, who serve him. It's questioning again God's justice. So that's how they weary him with their words. It, it revolves around a sense of fairness and a sense of justice. They say it's useless to serve God. It's vain. It's just no, no good, no use in it. And, and as a result of that, instead of saying the meat the meek shall inherit the earth. They say the arrogant will be blessed. Or at least that's, that's how they see things. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And now God said to his people, you can put me to the test in this one area. That is of bringing your tithes into the storehouse. He didn't say you can put me to the test all the time in every way. And here now, uh, Malachi, or, or what they're saying is, they put God to the test 
these evildoers and there doesn't seem to be any consequence for them. And not in the area of bringing their tithes into the storehouse. They're just testing God in ways God said not to do it. And look, it's working out just fine for them. So what's God going to say to that? Now, now, come on now. Let's be honest. You've got to admit, you may have thought the same thing from time to time. Uh, because terrible suffering and economic hardship and what seems like cursing at the moment comes upon God's people. It would be nice if I could stand up here tonight and say, boy, isn't it good that we, we as God's people, we never have to endure hardship. We never have to suffer. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to say that we, we as God's people, we never have to sit in front of a doctor and the doctor say you have cancer? Or wouldn't it be nice if I could get up here and say, now if you believe in God, if you really have faith, and you really obey him and follow him, a terrorist bullet or bomb cannot harm you. Wouldn't it be great if I, if I could say to you tonight, if you'll obey God and you have faith in him, your business will absolutely succeed. There's no chance it can go under. But I'd be defying scripture and um, several you know, thousand years of history and experience to know that I can't say any of those things. That being a Christian doesn't wall you off from cancer or terrorism or economic challenges. Sore throats, um, traffic jams, you know. I don't think I'm the only Christian that got caught last night in that traffic jam on 40. I could go car to car and there'd be some unrighteous and some believers and we're all caught in the same traffic jam. But... What do you say to someone who raises that very honest, what could be an honest question? I certainly understand how they could see the world like this. I think the answer comes in beginning at 4.1, where there's comfort. He says, uh, well, it's actually back before that. It's uh, 3.16. Here's where the comfort begins. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So the righteous talked to one another, expressing these concerns. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Now in my own mind, this is the beginning of the comfort that, he, that, that, that the text offers us. That God actually hears us when we lament. When we express our genuine concerns to God. He takes note of them. And in a lot of instances, that's all people are looking for, is that you're willing to listen to them. People come to my office to talk to me about all kinds of situations that they obviously know I don't have the answer to. But, but many people just seem to feel better that someone will hear them. And, and I think sometimes that's all... Your child might be looking for when they come to you with what looks like a complaint. Maybe they just want to know that you're really listening. Well, here's the beginning of the comfort. At the present time, God hears your lament. God hears. He's listening. He hears you. Whew. Well, that's the beginning of me feeling a little bit better. I want to know that God is listening. 
that God cares, that God hears. And the text says, God does. And, in verse 16, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. A book of remembrance. It's the only time a book of remembrance is mentioned. Now, there's a number of books mentioned in Scripture that are like sort of kept in heaven, that exist beyond just this temporal realm. In Psalm 139, 16, uh, it says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book, that is some book that God has, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So like, before I existed, there, God already has this book, a book that describes the length of my life and the, and the way my life will go. There, everyone has a number. We all have a number. Um, our numbers are uneven. Nope, our numbers are not the same. Uh, and our numbers are unknown. We can't know them. But there seems to be this book in which God has recorded the number of our days and the direction our lives will go. That's one kind of book. Then there seems to be a book of life that's not necessarily about the number of days we will live, but it's a book that separates those who have life and those who do not. Uh, Revelation 3.5 would be a good example of it. He who overcomes will thus be clothed with white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Sometimes this is referred to as the Lamb's book of life. Maybe it's the book where God records the names of his people. Not the evildoers, not the unrighteous, but his people. And then there is this book of remembrance that we don't have mentioned anywhere else, not called a book of remembrance. Well, what is it? It seems to record the obedient deeds of God's people. When they say it's vain to serve the Lord, God comes back and says, now wait just a minute, I want you to know there's a book of remembrance that has recorded those times and those ways that you obediently served me. And what that book of remembrance captures is the reality that God will not forget. God is taking note. He's saying, it's not useless to serve me. It may appear to be at the moment especially if what you're hoping is by some uh, obedience you get out some material blessing. Um, but no matter what at the moment, whether it appears there's some blessing for you or that God is taking note of it or not, I want you to know God is taking note of it and there is a book of remembrance where it is recorded. Well, what difference would that make? He goes on and he says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. And there's that image of God as father again that has sort of worked its way through Malachi. But in that day, now that's talking about that day of the Lord where he's warned you better be ready. But on the positive side of that day is this book of remembrance where God will not forget. 
Then, verse 18, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't. I mean, what's their basic complaint? It doesn't seem like there's any difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. It doesn't seem like, I can't tell that you treat your people any better than you treat those who are just pagans. And, and God's answer to that is, one, I hear you, and two, I want you to know there's a book of remembrance. I'm getting all this down, and in that day, there will be a distinction between the two, and everyone will see it. So what is he doing? He's once again pointing to the future, to a time when God will make all things right, when God's justice will be evident. And he continues this in 4.2. Uh, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be nothing but stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. Now compare that language to what we saw back in the, the language of the refiner's fire earlier, where he says, I'm coming, when they question his justice. He says, oh, I'm coming, and I'm coming with fire, but it's a refiner's fire. It's like... Uh, uh, a fuller's soap, someone who, who cleans garments with strong soap. That was for purification for his people. But what about those who are not his people? Who are the evildoers who have rejected God? There's fire again, but it's not to purify them. It's destructive. It's for judgment. And I love the language in verse 2. But for you who fear my name... The Son of Righteousness, that's S-U-N. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You know, the sun is an image of heat. So that same heat, you know, sort of like the same rain that can be blessing or curse. Well, the sun can be blessing or curse also. Like from the distance the earth is from the sun, the sun's a great blessing. It keeps us from freezing to death. Our crops need sunlight. Heck, our bodies need sunlight. What is it, vitamin D? Yeah. But what if you get too close to the sun? You, you can just be incinerated. So it, it's another image like rain uh, that can be blessing or curse. Well, this same heat that can be destructive and judgment, he can picture it as the sun of righteousness with healing in its wings. It's a beautiful image and of healing. And then you shall go out like leaping, like leaping like calves from the stall. And, and I don't think you have to be a farmer to get this image of how happy animals are who've been caged up or who've been in a stall and when they're set free. When they're, when, when they're able to run freely. It's a great image of joy. So here's the promise of healing and joy on that day for those people who are truly his people. This is the comfort that he promises us. That book of remembrance, he says, uh, your, your obedience to me will not be forgotten. Even if at the moment it seems like there's no difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. And then there's a two-verse conclusion, uh, or three-verse conclusion. At 4-4, four, four, 
He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, Horeb is another word for Sinai. It's, it's a call to be obedient to the covenant. Moses represents the, the covenant God made and the law. And I'm not surprised that he would come back at the end, given their disobedience, and say, now, do what, the covenant, what, I, what I set out in the covenant with Moses. Be obedient. And then, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome or terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's Moses who's mentioned here and Elijah. Now think about who Elijah is and what he does. You know, first, um, uh, we, we read about him in 1 Samuel what, 18, where he defeats the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. He is challenging uh, the idolatry in the nation. He's calling the people to come back and worship the one true God. And essentially, Isaiah's message to the kings and to Israel is to repent. Repent of your idolatry. Repent of your disobedience. Come back to the law. Be obedient to God. You remember his, his, uh, his incident with uh, Jezebel and Ahab over Naboth's vineyard where he stands up for what's right for this man who was killed just to get his vineyard for the king by, by Jezebel, the, the king's wife. He speaks very harsh prophecy, and of course it comes true. They end up being slaughtered. That guy. So Moses, who's the lawgiver, and Elijah, who calls the people back to the law, these two figures are singled out here in the last verses as we look ahead to the New Testament. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, who is the Elijah to come? Where is he? Do we, should we still expect Elijah? to? to and, and remember what happened to Elijah. He gets caught up into a whirlwind. He doesn't actually die. I don't expect the whirlwind killed him. It doesn't seem that true. He takes a chariot ride. It's a chariot ride, fiery chariot, catches him up into the heavens. And, and so he, he, he doesn't experience death, it seems, in the way that other figures in the Old Testament do. So maybe that opens the door for him to show up again. Well, you'd think. But then you start reading uh, Luke's Gospel. Uh, and you read in Luke chapter 1 uh, when he describes Zechariah in the temple uh, and, and what's going to happen with this son that's going to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, and you get to verse 16. So it's Luke chapter 1 verse 16. As Gabriel announces to Zechariah in the temple what his son, John the Baptist, is going to be like, gives him a little profile of him. And he gets around to verse 16 and he says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, does that not sound like what Malachi says the Elijah to come will do? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Right? So maybe that gives you a, gives you a clue. 
And then in verse 17, Luke 1, 17, he says, and he will go before him in the spirit and power. Well, he actually, he actually mentions Elijah there. Okay? So that sort of gives it away, who the Elijah to come is. Then you look in Matthew. And Matthew records Jesus saying this at Matthew eleven, eleven. Truly I say to you, among, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So there's Jesus saying that John the Baptist fills this role of the Elijah to come, the one who must come before the day of the Lord. And then in chapter 17, verse 9, this is after the transfiguration scene where they go up on the mountain, and guess who shows up? Guess who shows up on the mountain with Jesus? It's these two, Moses and Elijah. In verse 9, they're, now they're coming down from the mountain. As they were coming down, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So here's what he says. Jesus says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah must come. Well, Elijah has already come. And as far as we know, there's nothing that must happen as far as we know. The conditions have been fulfilled for that day of the Lord to come. Now, it might be a day or it might be a thousand days. It might be 10,000 days. It might be a thousand years. I don't know when the day of the Lord is going to come. When they asked Jesus about it, he said, Only the Father in heaven knows, not even the Son of Man knows. So if Jesus didn't know, how do you think I'm going to know? But the conditions, as far as we can know, have been met. So you remember when I used the, the little magic, the one, two, three magic illustration? That's one, that's two, and we live now waiting for that's three. The good news is, between two and three, God sent his son Jesus, and we have the possibility of returning to him through repentance. And that's the good news. And I hope we end not with uh, the word of judgment that he'll strike the land with a plague, but with the hope of repentance that's found in Jesus, our Lord. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a uh, run through Malachi. So we're finished for the night. I'm going to, uh, I'll just ask the, the number six blessing on you again. It seems appropriate. That's the sort of the priest's blessing. And we've talked about the priest quite a bit uh, this week, so I'll just end with that number six uh, blessing that was given to Aaron and his descendants. As they go, they were to bless the people, and so I bless you with it tonight. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Good night.